Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Fundamentalists Podcast. My name is Elliot Morgan, and I'm here with Dr. Peter Rollins. You know, we uh, we come up with these ideas, y'all, quite frequently. Uh, we say, what do you want to talk about? What do you want to talk about? And today, Pete has uh, a doozy for us. We're talking about the art of love, folks. And if there's one thing I know about Pete, it's that he not only loves people, he also is an animal lover. He he's a huge animal lover, and he is a bibliophile. And I don't just mean that he's a pervert. He is, but I also mean that he loves books. And some of you guys might be aware that ages ago, eons, it's water under the bridge. It's really no big deal. In fact, I don't know why I'm bringing it up right now. But like, there was a rumor that my garage flooded, and books that I was entrusted with accidentally got... Um, you know, they didn't make it onto the ark, as one might say. They were swept into the into the ether, into the abyss, never to be seen again. And so, Pete, if it's okay with you, I'm going to mention a few books that you don't own anymore. Yes, yes, I would love to hear this. For anybody who doesn't remember the story, yeah, I boxed up my library, and Elliot very kindly said he would look after the library uh, while I was away, and put it in his basement and yes because of a flood a number of those boxes were destroyed and I still to this day and it's quite cool I don't know which books were destroyed and which books weren't so um you've told me a few in a few of the podcast episodes so are you going to tell me how many are you going to give me today um I'll give you as many as you gave me plastic bins to keep the books in which is zero no okay here we go that was a dig about the cardboard (laughs) It's not my, it's no, no one's fault that it rains, you know, torrentially in Los Angeles once every year, but, um, it is unfortunate that I placed them intentionally right where I knew the water would, would be going. Um, Wolfheart Pannenberg. Oh yeah. Pannenberg. I mean, that's not a big loss. Pannenberg's an interesting guy because he's quite a conservative theological guy, theologian, but he has some really, he's very, um. He's got a very deep training in philosophy, so he occasionally says very, I mean, I would say I don't like the content of his work, but the form of his work is very interesting. He he does some very interesting philosophical moves. So yeah, which one of his went? Um, this is a book that just says Contemporary oh. Religious Thinkers, Wolfhart Pannenberg, written by Alan D. Galloway. Oh, yeah. oh, that's an interesting one, but that's fine. I've read that, and there's a really interesting chapter in that. But anyway, yes, very good. Um, I'm glad you say, yeah, Pannenberg. Okay, because Systematic Theology from Pannenberg? By Pannenberg? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that's fine. Okay, good, good. We're on a good yeah. roll right here. <laughs> um, yeah. Introducing radi- Radical Orthodoxy. Oh, is that by a guy called Connor... Is it uh, Cunningham? No. 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 James Smith. Oh, Jamie Smith. (laughs) Jamie Smith. I know Jamie Smith. Um, That book came out the same time as my first book. And uh, that book was seen, my book, How Not to Speak of God, and his book on, oh, no, it was his other book. Uh, What was his? It might have been that one, actually. And... um, they were seen as kind of two alternative readings and understandings of religion. So we had a few debates, including in Geneva, uh, where I had an interpreter who was interpreting, and I I speak very fast when I speak. And at one point I looked around and the interpreter, who was getting really annoyed with me at various points during the conference, I looked around and he'd literally stopped and was eating a sandwich. (laughs) Halfway through my talk, he just decided I can't translate this anymore and just had a sandwich in his mouth. So yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's, there's something symbolic about that, and it's really nice. Um, yeah. This one I feel bad about, Pete, because uh, I'm sure this is this has got to be something that you're um, that's going to go on your Christmas list. It's signifiers and acts: freedom and Lacan's theory of the subject by Pluth. Oh, by who? Pluth, Ed Pluth. 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 Oh yeah, that's okay. That's that'll just be one of these. Lacan books I bought and I don't that doesn't ring any bells so well means I haven't read it (laughs) so don't know anything about what about and what about this will be the last one mine I think I'm saying that mine my me mine mine camp mine camp is is that is it mine camp (laughs) 
Yeah, is that are you are you cool losing that one or is that? One? <laughs> oh uh, yeah, that's hilarious. Is that? That we should maybe just take this bit out of the podcast. <laughs> Wait a minute. Uh, I made that up, dude. I didn't actually think that you had that. Did you have that? Oh, I have Mein Kampf. Oh, yeah. I've read. I've read a good I bit totally of Mein Kampf. It's a terrible book. <laughs> oh, it's all right. No. Oh, God, even worse. No, I've, I have read. I don't even know if it's in the books anymore, but I did read a good bit of it. And you know why? Because... Uh, you I want to make to. a joke. We know why, Pete. We know. <laughs> yes, we know why, yes. Um, he, um, you know, Hitler had a very kind of new age view of the world. He saw it as an organic whole and this organic completeness and this kind of, this vision. And then there was just one group of people that if we just get rid of them, we could get back to this organic wholeness of a kind of society that is, you know, not technologically... Uh, oriented and that kind of our capitalism is under control, et cetera, et cetera. And so I remember years ago, I did a kind of a reading of kind of Hitler's organic view of society because uh, I wanted to critique that because that was very common in LA. And I just wanted to kind of make the connection between, between Hitler's organic vision of the world and what we often see today, which is the world's this organic whole. If only we could get rid of those people, whoever those people are, you know, and that depending on who yeah. you are, and that X is different. Los Angeles, the the people to get rid of are Irish people, which is why you don't, you're not here anymore. Cause we, that's like, why I left. Go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, well, that was fun. I mean, do you want another one? Do you want a bonus one? One that's not a joke, a but then one. ends up not being a joke. Cause you actually have the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That give me a real stuff. one. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's find one that just has a fun title. Um, yeah, you know, the, you know, the, Oh, uh, this is what I called my, um, the year I hit puberty. It's called the first coming. <laughs> the first coming. Oh, that's, uh, yeah, that's, um, one of those Sheehan? Jesus seminar guys. She, uh, Thomas, she, uh, or Sheehan. Sheehan. No? Thomas she, Sheehan. Uh, yeah. Sheehan. Yeah. Okay. I mean, interesting guy, but yeah, not, not someone I'm very interested in. Oh, good. So I didn't mind losing any of those except for Mein Kampf. And thankfully that was a joke. So it's still it was. okay. <laughs> that one's probably still pristine in its glass box. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Along with cool. the memorabilia, the SS memorabilia. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the lights that shoot up on it. So it looks incredibly majestic. It's a weird choice, but I'm glad you did it for a seminar. I'm glad you did it for a little bit. Uh, all right, folks. Uh, well, Pete, what do you uh, what do you what are you talking about when it comes to love? Yeah, I you know I just thought it would be interesting to talk about um, like what is required for love. What what does love orient itself towards? Uh, what does it mean to love? And um, there's a, a we we've talked about it a little bit before, I think. But you know, there's a very enigmatic idea in psychoanalysis particularly Lacanian psychoanalysis about this idea that love is oriented towards nothing uh, Lacan said love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it and I thought maybe we could unpack that a little bit and I was thinking of starting with so like how do you love an object so I was kind of thinking of starting with the idea that we often look for objects, whether people or possessions, that will complete us. We often begin by looking for something, whether it's an iPhone or a car or a job or a relationship, romantically or friendship, uh, that will kind of fill a lack within us, that will make us feel uh, less anxious in our lives and in a sense make us feel complete. And we even have that metaphor of two halves meeting and, and two people becoming complete. And so I thought I would start there, say a few things about that, and then you know have a conversation and keep moving from there. Um, the, the problem with this, in a nutshell, is that uh, every time we get the person or possession who we think will fulfill us, uh, there is a disappointment. Like objects don't seem to work in that way. And the more we think that they are going to work that way, the more disappointed we are. And what often happens 
say in terms of sexual relationships where you just go from one partner to another right and keep going 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 or you keep purchasing things you're obsessively getting packages every week to your door you're obsessively going on to amazon and buying stuff and looking at stuff and right keeping going and going and going or you buy a house and you want a second house a third whatever um something very subtle can happen and we begin to libidinally invest not in the object but rather in this frenetic ongoing pursuit you know of more and more so basically no finite object is is anything that we care about so and that's a form of transcendence because we kind of in a sense no longer care about finite objects we seem to go through them so fast um, and it's exhausting would you say, Peter, this is in any way connected to, say, Heinz Kohut and his idea of the self-objects and all that fun stuff, where a person, an object being a person or a thing, fills a certain role in the development of the person, of the overall person? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, Kohut? Yeah, yeah, I know a little bit, um, but do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Cause, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I just did a paper on Kohut, and I got a, you know, a good, really good, I'm not, whatever, I got like, a really good grade, whatever. Um, and uh, not that not that, and, not that you're going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, uh, I'm not, just, by I'm the not way. saying it. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It just is what it is. I just got a really good grade on it, and uh, yeah. and it's amazing. You've been getting well. a lot of good grades. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, ChatGPT is nailing it. He's, it's a good program, <laughs> and you can write anything for you. But um, I do have actually ChatGPT grade my my papers before I turn them in and I go give me like 10 critiques on here finding typos and it's very helpful but anyway besides that oh very good um Koha uh seemed like a really cool guy but he was also very into the idea of narcissism and then the idea of you know Freud's classic idea of sort of being um what's the word I'm looking for everyone's primordially narcissistic in some way and autoeroticism uh, no yeah some it's an adjective for narcissism but uh yeah basically that and it but then the objects become and then winnicott with object relations theory i don't remember which came first or second i think kohut came a little before winnicott um but you use another person as a sort of supplement for your own lack or feeling of lack or like you know the your your mom and dad your dad is the idealizing uh imago of the young person or then you need the mirroring you you know so the 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 smiling back at the baby and then all of these connections with the baby help it feel like it is safe because it's like essentially borrowing from the object it's you're going like oh i am also idealized oh I, this person likes me and therefore i'm okay because i'm the object of their their desire too and then yeah. omnipotent or I mean, twinship yeah. twinship is being is the other one yeah, this so the object relations psychology, which you yeah, have what you're talking about, that's interesting because so, yeah, in terms of psychoanalysis for everyone who's listening, whenever they talk about an object, then they're often talking about an internalized image of the other that becomes a type of object and how you relate so to not, that object. Yeah, so it wouldn't be like the person itself; it is the image you have of the or the imago that you have of the of the individual, what they represent in your brain. Yes, yes, and that becomes like I, this I'm, object. I'm not, yeah. yeah, I'm not think I'm saying that authoritative, but that's what it, it reminded me of that when you said that it's like not less about the um, the person or the object and more about the frenetic kind of back and forth. That, but I know that's a different thing. It's just I just got a good grade on my paper, so I just want to say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it is interesting because the object relations that the I always got the feeling that object relations well it's all about how you relate to these primordial figures of the mother and the father yes and you can split the, your mother for example into a good and bad mother we have these objects that we relate to and you carry those into your adulthood and you carry them into your relationship so you start to relate to other people in in a similar way to you re relating to those internal objects um yeah, so, but I always felt that object relations didn't really have a place for lack in the same way that Lacan did. So it's all about kind of relating yeah. to these internal objects. No. But I do think that probably relates in some respects because the way I'm talking about object is, yes, I'm talking about whether the object is a person, whether it's a, a possession, whether it's a vocation. So I'm using object in a, in not in the traditional way, but more in a, in a much wider sense that object relations would use it, which includes 
you know, the, the image that we have of the other. Um, nice. And then what, what can happen, and this is, the, this is the interesting thing, which, funnily enough, Karl Marx said this, so bringing in a bit of Marxism, always controversial with, uh, in America. Um, but We started with Hitler. You might as well just pile yes. I mean, if we're going to talk love, what, who isn't going to mention Hitler and Marx immediately? And Marx, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, Marx, he had this, he, in one of his ways of understanding capitalism was there's a subtle move between what he called MCM, which is money, commodity, money, where he says that, you know, you imagine, uh, no, sorry, sorry, CMC, sorry, CMC, commodity, money, commodity, right? So you start with a commodity. I make something, say I'm a painter, I paint a painting. So that's a commodity. I sell it on the market and I get money. And then I use that money to buy commodities that are useful to me, food and clothing and, you know, whatever. So that's what we all do. You know, we make commodities in work. Uh, and if we were, say, as a feudal time or artisans, we make a commodity, we sell it, and we buy more commodities. And then Marx said, but then there can be a subtle move from CMC to MCM. And this is where you then get money, and you get that money, and you invest in commodities so that you can sell them to get more money. And so very subtly, your desire is no longer on a, an object. Your desire is on the accumulation of capital, of money, abstractly. Mm -hmm. So I have a friend who was a, is a hedge fund guy and very successful. And he said this to me. He said, like, when he was in New York investing, uh, there was a point when he wasn't interested in what the money could buy. He just became interested in the increase of money. That's where, the, that's where all the passion and the motivation was, was seeing the money, the numbers increase and increase. And anybody who's done cryptocurrency will kind of probably have experienced this. The moment when, like, you know, the whole memes about crypto people dying uh, on a mattress in a hovel whenever they're millionaires, right? Because they never take the money out. It's because it, what, what becomes addictive is the abstract increase of capital divorced from the objects that it can buy. Um, that's a weird feature of human beings. Uh, and one other example is if, if you're a guy who goes into the army and you go into the army because you're going to sacrifice your enjoyment for the sake of citizens so that they can enjoy their way of life. They can go to schools, they can go to parks, they can go to work. So me as the soldier, I sacrifice my enjoyment for the citizens. However, what can happen very subtly is then I begin to enjoy the sacrifice. And what happens then is I begin to enjoy the conflict. I begin to enjoy the war. So the very thing that was the sacrifice of my enjoyment becomes my enjoyment. And then I cannot reintegrate into civilian life because now I, I directly libidinally enjoy the sacrifice itself. Um, and this, this for me is, is, is what's called a bad infinity. Uh, it's, it's, or what Hegel would call a bad infinity. It's like, it's like you, you're no longer connected to objects and people and things in the world. Now you're caught up in some sort of mystical, ongoing, frenetic pursuit of, of the obstacle itself, right? You're kind of caught up, you're, you're out of the world. And it's a secular form of mysticism, but you know, whenever you're just interested in the abstract accumulation of capital. But, it's a, but it is a form of transcendence because you're, as I say, you're not interested in objects anymore. You're not interested in stuff. You're interested in something that is ethereal. Would you say then that money is the root of all evil? Is that, or did we, did we establish that? Because someone else so, said that. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Marx. Well, when Mar that was Marx. That was another Jesus, Hitler, Marx, and yep. Jesus, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah, the Trinity. The big three. Um, the big three. I mean, this. I guess you could interpret it in that way. It's like when money becomes the desirable thing, and it's very bizarre because in one sense, what is money but the representation of value? So in a way, money is just a thing that allows you to get stuff that you can enjoy, whatever that is. But whenever you start to enjoy money directly, 
something very subtle has happened, but something that a, a form of a form of counterfeit religion in a way. Because as I say, if religion is about transcendence, if right, if religion is about some form of otherwise than being, then the a love of money uh, is a type of religion because the the idea of just wanting to increase capital without divorced from any concrete use value is a form of transcendence a form of weird transcendence i uh i have clear the um the sort of like not tsa pre-check thing i have tsa pre-check as well and i have clear uh and sometimes i'm like is this really that convenient or do i am i enjoying getting through the line faster or am i enjoying the fact that i'm getting through faster than other people and i'm kind of uh-huh. and i i when i walk past them i'll sometimes like i'll spit sometimes i'll be like get away from me you know i'll be like i'm i'm actually sorry clear like i'm i have clear excuse me yeah i have clear and like they kind of cut me in front of other people and it it makes me go that's money that i go i had money and i i spent it on clear and i now i'm i am a part of a different cult than whatever this line is these what I, what I call them i say get away from me you're dirty uh people but the pools yeah yeah they're 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 gremlins and yeah and they they're like that they, i don't even hear under they start saying things to me and all i hear is like because i think that they're um <laughs> subhuman well, that's it. Yeah, like, or, yeah they, that's why you pay for first class is the the best bit is if he, when you see people walking past you into economy you know that's yeah that's the money yeah it's uh our desire is, uh, is never yeah tom segura has his uh tom segura has his joke where he's like sometimes i get bumped up to first class and when you get bumped up to first class the feeling that washes over you immediately you're just like i'm better than every single person here i'm so much better than all these people and uh it was like when i'm in first class you even try to use the restroom i'll put my hand on your chest it's very fun Um, just stop someone from using that no that's actually it's like they have a trough back there for you guys uh it's very very fun but yeah um, the point being, money is a type of transcendence, and it allows you in various ways, especially if you have a bunch of it, to bypass the normality of the peons, of normal, of, of, of you know, and that was the example I could think of, because it is a yeah. luxury. That, that example you brought out as well is a beautiful example of what's called substitutionary enjoyment, because, so technically, you can imagine a private enjoyment, uh, and like Freud talks about this, almost pre-eatable enjoyment, what Freud actually called um, autoerotics, uh, autoeroticism, which is, there's kind of autoeroticism, and then there's uh, narcissism, and then there's object love, and which you were talking about object love. So autoeroticism means, uh, it's kind of, it's not, it's not that the infant loves itself, it's that there is no self in the infant. The, the infant is just kind of loves. Like there's no external or internal. The, the, the infant is just caught up in a, in a t- in enjoyment. Yeah, with without oceanic mother, web without, of beauty and love. That's it. Oh, oceanic web of what? Beauty and love. I just meant. Oh yes. That, yeah. Absolutely. That's it. It's an oceanic experience of absolute saturation, and then narcissism is when the love becomes uh, oriented to yourself and then object love is when it or it goes outwards to somebody else um but oh yeah but uh private enjoyment is when you just enjoy being at your mother's breast uh but once the incest taboo kicks in and once basically you're you're taken away from private enjoyment you have to get substitutionary enjoyment and that's where you can't just get direct enjoyment from something you have to there's a symbolic value so recently i was reading a book and it was a lovely day i was sitting by the water and i took a picture of it to put up on instagram because i couldn't just enjoy reading the book 
I had to, there was a substitutionary enjoyment, which is the enjoyment of people thinking that I was enjoying reading the book, right? So I, I can no longer yeah. just have this private enjoyment. And even if people think they're having private enjoyment, they're fantasizing about I'm having private enjoyment. Uh, you know, I'm better than other people or whatever. So to be human is to, is to not just be able to enjoy first class, but also to enjoy the symbolic value of first class. In fact, that becomes more valuable. So what you're saying is exactly structurally analogous to what I'm saying is that, yeah. that weirdly, yeah, you don't just enjoy the commodity of buying a nice house. You enjoy the symbolic value of people looking at it and going, you bastard, that's a lovely house. I wish I had it. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's um, our uh, spinoff podcast, which will be called Structurally Analogous, is going to have a lot of these parallels and examples. Once our empire kind of, you know, yes. explodes and we go from being yeah. um, in the top 0.5 podcast, the top 0.5 podcast, then we can, when we expand and become better than every, uh, everyone else is, um, that's That's perfect, what we're aiming right? towards. I'm glad That's I what we want. <laughs> Uh, Structurally analogous, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Go for it. What were you saying? With oh, the the example of uh, of like clear or something. Yeah. The I've noticed there is a um, this this Instagram account I follow, and uh, it's um, it, it it is called Secret Los Angeles, and they'll post things every day that are like, here's something quote unquote secret that's happening in LA. And it's always one of those very TikToky type reels where it's the voiceover being like, "I found this amazing bar and this outside of this, and you got it." And it is inevitably every time something like, "Here's a bar that you have to go through a fridge to enter," or <laughs> "Here's a bar where you have to go through a bathroom." And if you hit the flush button that says flush, it's a handle and it opens a door, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, that's so cool!" I gotta go to this secret thing that's got like you know forty thousand likes on it on um, Instagram or whatever. But they, I've noticed this thing where now all these pop up places, all these bars, they're designing themselves for their Instagram ability, not for their ambiance, so you can feel like you're getting away or anything like that. Or they're like, you know. Um, quality of, of service it is literally all just kitschy stuff so that people can go take instagram photos of and then they generate their business that way but it's like the business is coming yes. from from the instagram it's a social media there it's it's the physical it's the location version of a social media influencer just acting like a magnet for people Yes, that, and that's exactly symbolic enjoyment. So it's not it's not enjoyment just to go to a bar and have a drink. It's you're paying for the symbolic enjoyment of all of the things you've said, and you're part of the secret group, and you know how to get into this place, and it's a really cool place to be. Um, and also, by the way, what that does is it creates another group of people who just go to regular bars and go, I don't buy into that bullshit. And so they get symbolic value from thinking yeah, that they're win -win. regular everyday people. Yeah, so it's weird because, you know, because the whole idea, um, I think Todd McGowan said this, but even if you buy a pair of regular jeans from Target, you can't just buy regular jeans from Target. You're the type of person who doesn't buy expensive designer jeans. You're down to earth. Or if you go into a cafe and just order black coffee, the black coffee is never just black coffee. The black coffee can be and often is a critique of, you know, the, the coffee shop down the road that's all fancy and gives you oat milk and soy milk. So everything has extra symbolic value. And actually, uh, and that means this is a really easy way to understand what philosophers mean when they say A does not equal A. Whenever this idea that A does not equal A means that that nothing is just what it is. Uh, everything is infused with other languages and discourses and ideas. So you never just buy a pair of jeans. You never just have a cup of coffee. You never just, uh, you know, go to a regular bar. It, there's, always a, there's always a symbolic dimension to it, which means it's other than it is. The only always, way you uh, get away from it. Oh, go ahead. Always, you think, every time. I was, yeah, I was going to say the only exception is if you're in a coma or if you're a zombie or if you're, you know, invasion of the body snatchers. As soon as, I, I would argue, as soon as you're in language, there is always a dimension of the symbolic. So, for example, if, if I blush, 
if I blush because I'm in a coma, that is purely a biological thing. I'm in a coma and the blushing is purely some biological fact thing is going on in my body. But if I blush in a coffee shop whenever something is said, it's never just a physical thing. There is a, there is a symbolic dimension to it. Um, uh, oh, with one exception here, I'll tell you, because, yeah, you're right. With one ex the one exception is when you're completely lost in some activity, what Heidegger calls being in the world. Like if you get in the car and you just drive and you, you realize that you got from A to B and you've driven for an hour and you can't for the life of you remember doing it, you know, you're so kind of like just switched off, maybe in those elements, yeah. Hmm. So when you're driving <laughs> recklessly, yes, <laughs> I, I mean I don't I've I've done this. I haven't done it for years, but there's been a couple of times where I've driven and then realized I was somewhere I I was lost. Yeah, and I just yeah I just completely was was completely lost in my world. <laughs> um, yeah, I've had some showers that have gone on a little too long. That's a separate <laughs> separate reason, but I'm just saying in yeah. uh, in general. Yes, that's uh, a separate podcast. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a different different hobby um, that I get lost yeah. in. But uh, okay, so you can be oh, yeah. driving down and you cannot. What, okay, but in general, yes, there's a symbolic element. Now, how does this tie into the note the everyday and unless you have more, but the everyday understanding of love? It's such a big word, hmm. you know. So it's kind of yeah. hard to narrow it down and navigate this. Yes. Well, so what what we've covered so far is one is right. When we think that it's an object is going to fulfill us, it feels there's a failure of this these these substantive objects that we think are going to work. There's this failure. Then what happens is sometimes we then get libidinally invested in this infinite pursuit. And one way of describing this, Shizek says this is the infinite is parasitic on the finite. So in other words, we get so obsessed with this infinite accumulation, say of cryptocurrency, and every finite object is just sucked dry and thrown away to keep us in this treadmill of desire, which by the way, Adam Smith said was the nature of the invisible hand of the market. Adam Smith, the founder really of, of economic understanding of capitalism said that capitalism works because a lot of people are fooled into thinking that some objects are gonna make them really, really happy. And so they get into this frenetic infinite kind of like a treadmill, and that treadmill is what generates uh, the kind of economic system that we, we see today. So even he was saying like, it's kind of a, we get trapped by a lie. Because Adam Smith goes, actually, you know, if you have your basic needs met, there's a certain kind of happy spot where like, you're not too poor that you can't get anything. You're not too rich that you have all these rich people's problems. You kind of are at a level where you have everything you need. You have a little bit of cool social stuff. And that's the sweet spot. But, but for some reason, we as human beings, and you know, we can, a psychoanalysis, I think, answers why, but we then, through the failure of the finite object, become obsessed with this uh, transcendent infinite. So, the, oh yeah, okay, do you want to jump in? Well, the, oh. Yeah, it reminded, me of that, it reminded me of that old bit um, I did, I think, like one time about, I think, the reason we can't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't help it's really terrible. It's like you shouldn't help poor people because if there's no poor people, how do I know that I have money? Like, how do I, <laughs> like the only way that if you if everyone had money, then how would I be? How, what would I like? I'd be then I'd be poor if everyone wasn't. Yes, yes. That you again, can tell that's why this, I didn't do it. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you can tell why I retired it pretty quickly. But it was um, yeah. Uh, there's something there of like the the this just the. Uh, it really having very little to do with the money and way more about just like, mm, I'm better. The symbolic aspect, I guess. Yes. Probably yes. They, uh, that all connects into that symbolic stuff, uh, the enjoyment, which can be so destructive. <laughs> um, so one way, the first way I'm going to talk about this double twist. So the first twist I want to make is a reversal, which is how do we, how do we value objects? How do we value possessions and people? And so the first twist to maybe get back, to enjoying an object, and this is not a good thing necessarily, but the first twist is to get fixated on something that you cannot have. 
And so that's a that's a way to return to a finite object. So for example, you become obsessed with someone who is married to somebody else or who kind of lives in a different country. Um, you you want a product that you can't afford. You've got, there's houses that you would love if only you could afford them. Or you want a certain amount of people follow listening to your podcast, which we'll never get. And but if we but we have this sense that if we ever got to that level, then we'd be happy. So you can do this first twist, and this is a twist where the infinite is no longer a parasite on the finite, but the finite is a parasite on the infinite. So the finite lives by by kind of sucking, by kind of keep, by, by always being at a distance. So we're infinitely distant from the thing we want. We can never get it. Um, that's, what, that's what René Girard's parable of the, the, the man looking for a treasure is about, where he's told that there's a treasure in a rocky field hidden under one of the rocks, and he goes in search of it, lifts up all these rocks, can't find it, and then eventually he finds a rock so heavy he can't lift. And for René Girard, that's where we, uh, in order to keep our fantasy alive that some object is substantive and can fulfill us, we have to find an obstacle that stops us from getting it. Yeah, which maybe is the, Sisyphus which is the was just bored of lifting all these dang small weakling rocks up. He needed a big rock, and then he's like, now nah, I found it. I'm just going to stay here struggling with this big old rock. Yeah, and then he and he learned, as Camus said, to to love to love just pushing the rock. You know, maybe like for Camus, the answer is for to, for Sisyphus to love the unending struggle. Um, so I like that analogy. Okay, so do you have the it it that's what the that the treasure is under it though because you're still naively thinking the treasure's under it. You still yes. You still think consciously. Like it's not about going like oh that part that sucks that i don't like is actually i'm getting some existential joy out of it well i guess that is kind of not maybe joy not existential but is that what you're saying like it is kind of like you're unaware that you are getting the treasure by because you are consciously focused on the treasure under the rock the big rock yeah i mean you're so you're still getting yeah yeah absolutely like you're still getting your enjoyment from from not getting, right? You're still getting your enjoyment yeah. from the infinite, but consciously and even unconsciously, you think that there is some finite object. So you think that getting this object, this person will fix it. So you think that, but unconsciously, you kind of give yourself a task that you will never get, right? So the obsessive is a perfect example of that, that they, they, they find uh, something or someone that they'll never get and that, and then they can almost keep loving the finite. So, so now they're loving something finite, but only because it's impossible, only because they can't have it. Um, or, the, or the hysteric who only loves what is taken away. So they start to love their partner as soon as their partner starts to go off with somebody else, right? Then their desire. So, so, the, so it is a way for us to try to love something in the world, um, and but really, as you're saying, I think you're saying this is that but that our enjoyment is still in the impossible. It's still in the infinite. It's still like we're fueled by not getting. Uh, so we haven't quite got to love yet. This could be called okay. lust. Yeah. Um, so here's the third. Here's the second twist. Here's the double twist. Um, it's where the impossibility or the infinite is no longer either something that we are invested in and we get rid of all these finite objects. It's no longer what's between us and the finite object. It's within the finite object. And so what I mean by that is that love is an orientation towards an infinite dimension within another person or within a cause or within an object. That there, so take a painting as an example. You love a painting if when you look at it, it has so much depth that you cannot grasp it and you have to go back to it again and again. And every time you go back to it, it speaks to you in a different way so that the painting has the infinite within itself. And this is why, you know, Lacan says, love is giving what you do not have to someone who does not want it because what you do not have is your own lack. In love, you give that lack to someone else and they give their lack to you. That dimension of the infinite within each other 
you provide a harbor for each other's lack. And at first, that's not what we want. We want an object that is substantive, that's full, and is going to fill us and complete us. We do want a divided object, an object that has a dimension of the infinite and mystery and unknowing and absence within it. But actually, love is where you orient yourself to that dimension in the other. Do you think it has to be a particular, uh, can it be like, if I really like this, these, this AirPod case, which I do, um, mm. Can I look? Can I love this AirPod case for for the finiteness of it, finitude? See, that's that's a good question. Like, and maybe in the way I'm speaking, you might say, no, you can't love your iPod case. You can enjoy it. You can get value out of it, but you can't love it. Like, you, you, don't tell me what I can. Who I can and can't. <laughs> don't tell me what I can't. All right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's a good question because, like, if love. If love always orients itself to a dimension of mystery in an object, then obviously it's easy to love music, it's easy to love art, it's easy to love architecture, and it's easy to love sculpture in a person, because you can find this. It's easy to love science, physics, chemistry, biology, all because there's, in a sense, a dimension that's always uh, impossible within all of these realms. But yeah, can you love ice cream? You know, And you go like, well, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, we say we love ice cream or whatever, but like, um, un unless we're a physicist and we're saying that we really love the makeup of ice cream, we love, we're kind of, because there's a certain sense in which reality is impenetrated by lack. You know, that's different. But yeah, um, this is maybe making yeah. love special again. It sounds like, I mean, to put it in um, the uh, new agey, parlance which is your favorite mm -hmm. yes um, <laughs> how you talk but it is uh what it sounds like a an enchantment a re-enchantment from deadness a realiveness a sort that's of a good, oh this nice thing way. is yeah. actually alive now this is not just a dead thing to get something nor is it just about the frenetic pursuit but it is it there is something to this thing that is is uh compelling yeah and the only thing i'd add to that because i i for me, love is her inherently horrific and inherently traumatic and uh, violent in a way. And what I mean by that is that to love somebody or something is to open yourself up to the dimension of what is not known, what is other in them. So whenever what we're looking for is someone who looks like us, who acts like us, who, who in a way is tameable and understandable, but in this religious injunction to love your neighbor or love your enemy, it is an injunction to remain open to the dimension of the other's unknowing desire. And that is both really, in, it's very um, appealing and also terrifying. So there is something about enchantment that you're exactly saying, and I just want to add to that enchantment and horror. Like there's something really difficult about being open to the unknown dimension of the other because it's almost like the people that you know best, the people who are most familiar to you could do something this week that utterly destroys you. They can, and where you go, where did that come from? I thought I knew you. I thought you were familiar to mm -hmm. me. Some dimension of them and it utterly destroys you. And they don't even know why they did it because they're not just a mystery to you, they're a mystery to themselves to be open to that. When you're young, it's okay, but how do you, for the, all of your life, remain open to that dimension of the other when it is the space that could destroy you? I mean, it's almost impossible. I have a friend who his uh, Twitter, excuse me, his Instagram account has been hacked currently, and Ooh. it keeps regularly posting um, clips from the world series of poker for some reason and like uh, <laughs> and my friend's name is steve zaragoza who is uh not like a poker guy and uh the first time i saw it i was like oh, what what is steve doing does steve get into <laughs> poker like he's not a poker guy and i was like I texted him and I was like, Steve, are you into poker now? And he was like, no, I got hacked. Please report it. Blah, blah, blah. And he panicked or whatever. But I had a little moment of like, do I even know this guy? What's wrong <laughs> with him? And why wouldn't he have told me that he's into poker? I like poker. Why not? 
we could have learned about it together. And uh, yeah, so that's exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> that was what we call structurally analogous. Yes. Oh, yeah. And on that, by the way, in terms of obsession and hysteria, in terms of masculinity, femininity stuff, is that that if, if you're a guy, I've seen some memes on this. It's quite funny. But like, if you're a guy and suddenly after 40 years, you turn up at your friend's house and say you're wearing a hat, right? You've never worn yeah. a hat before, but you were like, that's your friends are going to take the piss out of you, right? Yeah, like, they will you the hat guy. You're the hot guy now. You're the fucking hot guy, yeah. right? you know? Um, whereas, you know, a woman obviously can ch- change her outfits and in fact it's the opposite if she stays in the same stuff too long people will say something to her right so but the idea of course is this masculine structure is the male thinks they're a man and the woman pretends she's a woman i.e there is a there's a certain kind of uh obsessive uh attempt to hide from the reality that we are other to the other and other to ourselves and that's why for lacan you know, the feminine, the, what's called, he calls the non-all. The non-all is closer to the truth. Uh, you know, if you feel your identity as something that you can play with, that you can mold and, and kind of put on, rather than as something you are, that's actually closer to the, the truth of, of what it is to be a subject, uh, that, that guys contend to uh, lock themselves into a certain fashion from whenever they're 20 years old or whatever. And of course, you can understand it because men's bodies don't change much from adolescence yeah. to an old age. Like your, your body's not changing, whereas if you're in a feminine body, which is changing all the time, you're more used to that. So uh, why was I saying that? Uh, oh, yeah, in terms of otherness is that, yeah. that uh, the obsessive is the one who who tries to avoid otherness at all costs. So for example, the person who collects magazines, they're trying to fill in every gap, right? Because, yeah. because which the gap is within them, but they're trying to fill in every gap. Uh, but so but that's why I made the documentary about Tammy Faye Baker, because she was, one, she was a person who could not shut herself off from the torrent of the other's unknown dimension like she tammy faye was always open to the other even when she was ridiculed laughed at uh, mocked uh she always welcomed whoever she met with open arms so one time famously in the movie about her life there was some kids laughing at her and she went up to them and introduced herself but the truth of that story was even more so is that it, it was based on a true story but all these kids were laughing at her in the mall and she went up to them and said listen you know if you're going to laugh at me you've got to get to know me so let me go and buy you lunch and they all went to Applebee's and she bought them all lunch and they all chatted and that was Tammy Faye Baker it's like no matter what you think of her she was someone who was unable to shut herself off from loving the unknown dimension of the other and it probably killed her but there's something so beautiful about Mm. trying to be a person who remains open to give a harbor to the other's unknown dimension and i think that's what love is at at its core i thought you're you're gonna do a twist ending where that was her and symbolically enjoying the money she had like oh i got applebee's money look at me (laughs) yeah uh do you have you seen the meme of um the i don't know if it's even a trend where girls will ask their boyfriend or husband uh about whether they think how often they think of the roman the fall of the roman empire yes <laughs> that could be a whole good. episode but uh i love it <laughs> and i had a whole conversation and great i was like i really don't think about no i don't think about the roman empire but i was like i wonder how many guys feel pressured to say that they think about the Roman Empire versus how many actually think about the Roman Empire. Um, but do yes. you think about the Roman Empire a lot, Pete? I, you know, I saw this trend recently and I did think about it. I was like, do I think about the Roman Empire? And um, so the truth is not very much, but probably, you know, occasionally. Think, like, Yeah, you get, like, I was thinking about this. I had the same thought because I was exactly almost verbatim what I was telling Grace. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm sure sometimes I was like, I get the importance and I get like the the parallels of like our current like modern America. And Grace was like, see, already that's that's more than I knew. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not like 
I'm not like thinking about it. And I was like, I am curious that I should learn more about it. And then I was like, oh, I think it's just because I, like you and I have n- our own separate nerdy interests. And mm-hmm. that I think just fills, it fills the hole left by the Roman Empire. Yes, well, because ironically, I was thinking about the Roman Empire today, but it was because it came up <laughs> in a in a video I was watching on Instagram. Oh, okay. So, but so they, but but the funny thing is, it came up, and I did then think about it for about five or ten minutes yeah, <laughs> afterwards. It's fun. It's a the, yeah, <laughs> it's like taking a walk. You're like, oh, let me just think about that for a second. How'd that go? Yeah. Um, Anyway, I don't know why I, I, I brought it up. I think it was about the dudes wearing the hat or something. Cause oh, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like, I know if, uh, if I, because I painted the office, and I know I knew that my buddies over at the, at the Valley Folk would immediately comment on it, and they commented on it immediately. And I also know that those dudes, my buds, will comment if I'm wearing anything that I have not seen before, any bright mm-hmm. color, any, it's like toddlers. And they're like, hey, you're doing something yes. different. And uh, yes. I go, yeah, yeah, I am. And then I'll go, Grace, what do you think about this? She goes, you look fine. It's like, I didn't notice. I, she won't notice if I get a haircut. She's like, okay. But dudes, yeah. they all notice. Yes. I mean, that kind of makes sense in the sense that most guys have a obsessive personality structure to some extent. And so it, it does make sense that guys will do activities and say things that fit with the idea of um, a slight either taking the piss out of or a discomfort with um, an encounter with the person's, uh, with some strange dimension of the other, the strangeness of yeah. the other. So yeah, yeah that's nice. funny. <laughs> um, so, okay, can you, to, to summer, let's wrap this or oh, yeah. summarize up to where we're at right now. What's the, the how do we get here? Okay, well, he, so we got here from, you know, there's the finite objects in the world that often, whenever we want them to satisfy us completely, feel, which brings us into a form of transcendence in which we often then libidinally get interested in this infinite and in which finite objects become less valuable. We can sometimes then return to a finite object, but only in playing games with ourselves where those objects are impossible to get or always under threat. Uh, And the double twist is when we realize that no objects in the world are substantive, everything is divided. And actually the division uh, within the object is exactly where love can get a purchase. That there is no love without strangeness. There is no love without weirdness. There is no love without some sort of kind of division. And now I would argue, which I can do elsewhere, that everything is divided, but let's just talk about people. People uh, have this dusting, this dimension of otherness. And you know you love someone when you provide a space or a harbor for that, where you're, you're, you remain open to it, where uh, you realize the other is a stranger. The other is weird. This, by the way, often happens in terms of male sexuality and sometimes female emotion. That, you know, guys can be very sexually weird. And, you know, women can often talk about that with their friends, about the weirdness. That can be a place of disgust. And also it can be a space of interest. (laughs) Um, And also sometimes emotion can be that. It's like uh, somebody can have like more emotional ups and downs, which is, again, like, I don't understand it but I'm attracted to it, right? I, like, I, you know, somebody can be so emotionally straight and they, they're, they're really attracted to a partner who has emotional highs and lows because there's a strangeness to it. I don't understand why you're happy and sad. I, I kind of feel discombobulated by it, but actually I love it. But that can also be the place of hate. That's what I mean about this thing. And also sexuality, as I say, it's like, I don't know why they're into this, but I like it or I don't like it. <laughs> so, but, but again, that I think is where love, love can only grow in the space of the weirdness, the strangeness, the infinite abyss of the other. And if we don't have that, you don't have love. It is the mercurial, mercurial element in the alchemical uh, container. Oh, say, so, unpack yeah. that. What's that? The al- alchemy. Uh, I could, I'll oh. probably butcher it, but in alchemy, the the mercurius, the the quicksilver element, mercury, um, also a trickster thing, embraces paradox and contradiction and um, 
that which screws things up where there's always something that's never quite there then it comes in and that's where that gives it the most action that gives that makes it start happening so everything starts happening by oh i love way that of of yeah the mercury it's fun it's very fun little, little i love thing. that i love that i don't know i say i don't know anything about that that, that tradition, I know that's more of a Jungian thing, so I'm very interested, but that sounds exactly like what we're talking about, yeah. That, Probably that butchering, kind of yeah, I should alchemy. find something. I need reread it, because some of that stuff gets really interesting, and then a lot of times I go like, ah, it's not my deal. But um, yeah, the, the, the metaphorical element of it is very fun. Um, yeah. I mean, you could say... Anyway, you that's could nice. Say that, I like but, that. Yeah, and you could say that love... Like, unfortunately, you know when you're kind of out of love when the person no longer surprises you. I think Todd McGowan said that once, but he said you kind of know whenever you, whenever the person is so predictable to you. Now, they're not predictable. That's you're lying to yourself. But when you believe that they're so predictable and that you've kind of shut yourself off to any dimension of them that is other and you're repulsed by any dimension of them that is other, uh, you're kind of like the relationship is probably over. You just don't know it. And it's very hard. To, at the start of a relationship, it's easy to kind of love that dimension of the weird and the strange. But it takes a lot of work, a lifetime of work, to re- keep that, to keep yourself open to that and the other, and even to reintroduce it into your relationship and kind of like um, try to reconnect with that dimension of the other. So, but that's kind of, I think, the, the challenge of love. And whenever we say we should love our enemy and love our neighbor, it is a practice of attempting to remain sensitive to the strangeness and the weirdness of the other and not to reduce them to something that we think we can completely understand. You know, not to reduce them to some sort of either object that we hate or we love. You know, we hate or, or, or that uh, completely uh, kind of... Uh, yeah. Mirrors, mirrors us. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, you said reminds me of the, I wonder if that's a fun little, um, the, you, do you know the four horsemen of divorce? Have you heard of this? The four horsemen of what? Divorce, did you say? D- divorce. Yeah. Oh no, tell me. Yeah. It, it is, uh, developed by John Gottman and, um, it includes criticism, defensiveness, stonewalling, and contempt. But stonewalling is what it sounds like you're describing, where you emotionally are cut off from the other person. And so that's when they, like, these are signs that you're, you're headed toward divorce. And one of them would be when you or your partner is, um, it is as if they're behind a wall and the anything you do, or anything they do, you're unimpressed by. Anything they do is not surprising or attract or it's pathetic if they try to you know surprise you with something it's sort of just like mm, no thank you and very numb toward the other person it sounds like that's a similar um idea like that person yeah. is no longer you're out of love because that person is no longer uh in your mind a mystery of any kind and and contempt as well so contempt is mm-hmm. whenever you said that word it made me think of that's where whenever the person uh, does anything that's a little bit kind of like expresses their desire you know even you know that that joke about which is true like some people whenever their partner's eating just hearing the sound of them eating the food begins to grate on them right which is <laughs> so the sad. other's desire what's that it's so sad when you hear those stories especially <laughs> if they're like but, married for and like oh, just the sound of his chewing makes me want to stab him in the face <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. But it's, you basically, it's hearing the other person's desire, you know, because when you're eating food, your desires, it's like when someone plays music oh. too loud in the house next door and you get really frustrated because they are, their jouissance is, 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 is impacting in you. So contempt is almost whenever the other's jouissance, the other's pleasure really rubs you up the wrong way. Um, and what were the other two? Because I think it almost felt like all four fitted. So what were the first two? Cynicism, uh, criticism and defensiveness. Criticism, defensiveness, then stonewalling and, and, and contempt. Uh, contempt. Yeah, you know, whenever you're doing that, for me, all of those kind of sound like really interesting ways of describing this, uh, this no longer being fascinated by, intrigued by, and drawn into this unknown dimension of the other. Yeah. And that's yeah, the end of um, relationships over. What I, I remember learning about this back in the day, um, but it was um, 
he said that they say that they can predict the accuracy of a divorce like over 90 percent of the time based off of um those four characteristics and they can do it immediately in like the counseling of the couples like they know based on the presence of the four horsemen whether or not um that there's even a a chance of of resuscitating a relationship and if there's not if there is then they don't have you know those four or maybe i don't know if it's all four i'm not sure but pretty pretty fun stuff i think and there's also, I mean, it's just on that, uh, you know, that's because sometimes a relationship is over, the people just don't know it. And so other people on the outside know it. So it's, it's not that the relationship might be over, it's the, the relationship is over. And the analogy of the cat off the cliff in a cartoon, they're off the cliff, they just, until they look down, they don't fall. And so sometimes when couples go into re- couples uh, counseling the relationship is already over they just have to symbolize it they all they have to do is find a way to you to put it into language and so yeah that's why i think sometimes it's very easy to tell from the outside because you're like oh this is already ended you just actually you haven't symbolized it yet <laughs> yeah yeah it's the, you make the eye contact with your other buddy and you're like oh they're not gonna mm, i don't know about that uh it's yeah, when yeah. couples badmouth each other that's the fifth one i think um Uh, if you ever like find someone who's uh, that's why i don't even allow criticism of me in our relationship um in ireland that means there'd be no good couples because that's that's basically all we do is bad mouth each other friends and couples you know so yeah also it is wily coyote um that you that goes off the cliff i believe typically you said oh is that right Ah. i I think you're referring to roadrunner but in roadrunner my i'm sure roadrunner does but yeah yeah, I've yeah, got, I've got a feel across. other car. There must be other. There's, I think that's a few. Is that yeah. not like cartoon physics but, where they, uh, a lot of them do that? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, the Looney Tunes. Uh, I believe it originated with Looney Tunes, but. Well, no, hold on. Like, yes, yeah. you're the expert. I, you, when it comes to Looney Tunes, I know you know, yeah. you know that inside. Yeah, right? but you're not wrong. It is many others, but I just wanted to just, you know, be specific that Wiley Coyote is, I believe, the main one. Uh-huh. Um, but they all do it, and then they and I like the ones where they walk off and then walk right back to the cliff. They, they go like, "Oh no, it's so good, it's so funny." It's so good. Um, we should do that cartoon physics and and the truth. What is the what yeah. is the truths that are described in cartoon physics? Because there's there's loads in there. Like what other ones oh, are there? So um, well, there's yeah. the classic: put your finger on the end of the gun and it blows the other person up because it stops yes. the bullet. Uh, and then there's <laughs> The, with uh, Elmer Fudd, oftentimes, and Bugs Bunny, will take the gun and just bend the barrel back, and then it shoots oh. him. Uh, and then at one point, it shoots Daffy Duck, but his mount, his bill just spins around over and over again, and then he just has to readjust it. And yeah, it's pretty pretty great stuff. <laughs> oh yeah, and the eternal like the being able to beat somebody to death or blow them up or whatever, and the very yeah. next moment they're completely uninjured, right? Like this. Yeah. You know Tom and Jerry. You just, they can take infinite amount of abuse and metal pans and, and pots. Um, that's like the. I mean, my favorite movie being Who Framed Roger Rabbit. When at the beginning they have to do a separate take because they smash the refrigerator on the head of the tune, but he keeps seeing uh, little birdies instead of stars. And the director's like, "It says stars, not birds. Stars." <laughs> And he has like, we're gonna do it again because it keeps, he just can't see the right, he can't see the right thing. But he's getting a whole refrigerator dropped. <laughs> it's very, very good move. Anyway, um, that is a movie that is true. That symbol that I genuinely love for what it is. So I think I get the, I get, think I get everything that you're saying, Pete. Oh yeah, yeah. The other one that I was also obviously drawing a black circle and then being able to go through it. That's a great whole. cartoon physics. Yeah, the whole uh, and yeah. and everything else dropping whenever we're like, what would that be? Where the world, like instead of you falling, the world falls or something. I can't nice. quite figure it out. Yeah, something up. Like yeah, the um, the whole is another big one in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And when I was a kid, I absolutely was obsessed with the idea of having a hole. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world because they take out a little black circle and they <laughs> smack it on the wall and they you know, look a hole. And I was like, where where's it go? So cool. But uh, yeah. Great, good, good stuff. It's um, I need to rewatch Looney Tunes. Is the moral of this episode? So thank you. That's my takeaway. Uh, yes. But do you have any takeaway, or are you? Is there more to this? No, I I covered everything I wanted to, which which was basically just one thing, which is that. 
that love orients itself to a lack, but not a transcendent lack, an imminent transcendence, or not like an imminent transcendence, like an imminent nothingness, an imminent space within the other. And uh, and, and now, and then the, it, we haven't touched on this at all, but this is present, is how do we do that? Like, how do we move from one object to another to another, to, you know, only loving objects that we can't have, to this idea where we can genuinely, uh, uh, find a depth in the vocation that we have, in the artwork that we have, in the life that we have. So yeah, so that's that's the challenge. But but I I just wanted to I suppose I wanted to kind of make sense of what Lacan means when he says that love is in a way an orientation towards nothing. And giving something you don't have to someone who isn't having it either. She yeah he doesn't want it as well. Someone you know doesn't <laughs> initially doesn't want, want it yeah. It. Yeah. I love it. That's so fun. I love that quote. I love that line. And what an excellent podcast, Pete. You really brought the fire uh, on this episode. And we uh, would like to thank our listeners. We are in the process of, I don't know if you guys can tell, we're uploading pretty regularly at the moment. Um, we're mm-hmm. trying to find a way to you know, potentially partner with some folks. So if you want to leave us a review, uh, it helps a lot on iTunes. I know it's been a while since we've asked about this. Anywhere you can leave reviews is super helpful. But if you've enjoyed this or other episodes, please give us a good old five stars and say nice things. I apologize to the guy back in 2018 who said I say like too much. I hope he has found that I have improved marginally since then. <laughs> and if uh, he has any questions about that, he can like hit me up or like whatever. But um, thank you guys. And Pete, is there anything else that you would like to close I'm out? I'm good. With? I'm good. I'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much.